This is a podcast from the Royal Irish Academy. In this episode, a recording of an R.J. Hunter Fellowship event which took place in the Academy on the 13th of September 2018. R.J. Hunter was a highly respected historian of the Ulster Plantation who spent the bulk of his academic career teaching at the University of Ulster. The R.J. Hunter Grant Scheme was established in 2014 using funding generously made available by his daughter, Miss Laura Hunter Houghton, through the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland. This podcast features presentations by two recipients of R.J. Hunter Postdoctoral Fellowships, Dr. Jared Farrell from Trinity College Dublin and Dr. David Heffernan from Queen's University Belfast. The event also featured a presentation by Professor David Dixon from Trinity College Dublin on remembering Bob Hunter. The event was introduced by Professor Mary O'Dowd from Queen's University Belfast. Thank you all for coming. Um, my name is Mary O'Dowd and I'm the, um, the Secretary for Polite Literature and Antiquities in the Academy, um, which is basically looking after uh, humanities uh, events and issues. So I would first of all like, on behalf of the Academy, to welcome you all here to this event celebrating, in a way, the life and scholarship of R.J. Uh, or Bob um, Hunter. And also, of course, to acknowledge the Academy's gratitude to Bob's daughter, Laura Hunter Houghton, um, who has generously supported this event and also the grant scheme uh, for the two fellows um, who will be talking uh, later. So personally, too, I would like to say how I'm absolutely delighted to be here in the Royal Irish Academy celebrating the work of Bob Hunter, um, because I have very fond memories of um, Bob, particularly um, in the 1980s, in the mid to late 1980s, when Bob used to spend four to six weeks um, in London doing research. And at that time, there was a sort of group of Irish historians of the 16th and 17th century um, who would, you know, annually make the trip to the London Record Office, as it was then, the London Public Record Office, um, which was in Chancery Lane in the old, um, or the lovely, uh, in the old building, but in the lovely round room uh, in Chancery Lane, which is where um, the medieval and early modern uh, documents um, were read or made available to historians. Um, and so we would all gather there um, in the summer months, but then there was a sort of ritual um, of, in the evening, um, gathering again in the, um, the Lamb pub in Conduit Street in, uh, in London, um, which is now, or which then was just an old Victorian pub, but I see now looking it up, it now has its own website and is a is a, a tourist pub. Um, but we used to meet there uh, in the evening. And one of my most, I suppose, vivid memories of Bob is of him standing outside the Lamb with a pint in one hand and a cigarette in the other, um, telling us about what he had discovered in the port books. Um, in the record office that day. Because long before the term 
you know, the history of material culture had been uh, invented. Bob was really exploring the material culture um, of the, um, the Ulster Plantation because he went meticulously through dozens of port books of ships that were trading with Ireland from English ports like Liverpool or Chester or uh, Bristol. And what he was doing is he was looking for ships that traded with the north of Ireland and particularly those that uh, traded with Derry. And he was looking at the goods that these ships were bringing in to the, um, the new settlers in the Ulster plantation. So he would talk to us about discoveries of uh, ships coming to Derry with Dutch roof tiles or books or combs um, and all the sort of varied items that he could find. Um, and it was almost like looking for a needle in a haystack, some of the, the work he had to do to, to um, find this material. But in talking, he would also be imagining what the settlers were doing with these things, and in effect, trying to recreate the world um, of the settlers. And of course, on those occasions, Bob's account of all of these things was, was uh, done with a great sense of humor and um, a great sense of sort of mischief, um, but also um, very interesting commentary um, on the Ulster plantation. So I have a lot of very good memories of uh, conversations with Bob. Um, so I think it's just terrific that his, uh, his uh, daughter, Laura, is um, putting this uh, investment in to uh, celebrating his scholarly work and making it uh, better known. So there's a strike change to the program because Professor John Morrow, unfortunately, couldn't make it uh, this morning, this afternoon. So um, Professor Mary Daly, uh, former president of the Academy, um, is going to say a little bit on behalf of the RJ Hunter Grants Committee before we get on to the, the main business. Thank you very much, everybody. And I feel a complete interloper among all these early modern historians because I'm, I'm way off my comfort zone here. But I, like Mary, have memories of Bob Hunter, mainly a, and David Dixon, you would have been there too, the early meetings of the economic, Conference of the Economic and Social History Society, where he was a stalwart attender, and it was always a pleasure to meet him and to enjoy the, the comments that he would make on particular papers and on the, on the general surroundings. And... Uh, during my term as president of the academy, one of the jobs that fell to me was to really uh, work on a, a activating this particular uh, award scheme. Uh, and I, I really want to pay tribute, first of all, to Laura, Laura uh, 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 Hunter Houghton. Laura, Laura lives in Australia, Northern Australia. And we had long, we had one or two long conversations by phone about a, a really kickstarting this. And she did come over while I was president here to Academy, and we, we had another session to talk it through. So Laura is going to get an audio a recording of today's events. And Laura, when you when you get there, I hope you really enjoy. I hope you really enjoy. It's a pity you weren't in the room with us because there's a great 
there's a great lively conversation already starting about Bob in various quarters and stories are flying, uh, we're flying uh, over coffee before we started. And uh, we hope that this is not the last uh, event when the Academy will uh, celebrate uh, Bob and, and, and his contribution to Irish history. The grant scheme really was Laura's uh, initiative. And the other person who has played a remarkable role in it is sadly not here with us today, and that's John Morrill, a great friend to many people in this room and a great friend to the Royal Irish Academy. And uh, together with John and James McGuire, we have, we have overseen this, this project for some time. So I want to really express personal thanks to Laura, uh, to, to John Morrill, and to the Academy staff who've worked with us. Um, I think the other point I would make is that we um, John, uh, that Bob's papers are in prony and we are hoping to do something to make the, the, a, a database of those papers uh, more accessible to people so that people will know what's there and what they might be able to access. That's one, one, of, one, of, one of our goals uh, for, you know, after this point. But I think it's wonderful that we have been the facilitator of quite a number of travel grants. And in the spirit of Bob's work, uh, some of those grants have gone to people who are independent scholars, because this is so much the milieu in which Bob, Bob a great scholar, really felt most at home. And we have also, I think, uh, I'm delighted at this occasion, we were going to award one postdoctoral fellowship, but they, they, there were two outstanding candidates. And rather than do Solomon and cut the baby in two, we decided we were able, thanks to the generosity of the fund, to, to, to uh, support two postdoctoral fellowships. And uh, we want to hear today about what you have learned and uh, many other aspects. But before doing, I think we'll continue you on the theme of Bob, the person and the historian, and I'll, I'll hand back to Mary. So as you can see from the programme, then the, the first um, speaker will be Professor David Dixon from Trinity College Dublin, um, who knew Bob and uh, spent a lot of time talking to him about history and various other things. So um, David is going to talk um, about remembering Bob Hunter. Well, thank you for the uh, invitation. Uh, and I also feel a little bit like an intruder uh, from the 18th to the 17th centuries. But uh, I've had some good help from one or two sources, uh, present and not present. And I would particularly just like to acknowledge for the record uh, a conversation I had yesterday uh, with uh, Laura from uh, Melbourne, uh, which uh, put me right on one or two things. Uh, so my thanks, as I say, to those present and to certain others uh, for just giving me a little bit of a steer. Um, because it's a bit difficult for me. I, I cannot claim to have been an intimate accomplice of Bob. And I, did, I, I wasn't even present at his funeral in Derry 11 years ago when St. Columns Cathedral was filled to capacity uh, to hear an array of exceptional tributes. And that leads to a second difficulty. The, the tributes on that day and the tributes that have been appearing subsequently, most notably John Morrill's uh, essay in at the beginning of his uh, collection of Bob's writings, Ulster Transformed, um, 
these are there on the record. You can see them on the uh, Hunter Collection website. Uh, and they provide a superb composite picture of Bob the historian, Bob the teacher, Bob the friend, the ever generous friend. Uh, and they go a considerable distance to, to capture, really, I think, what made him special. So I'm not going to try and repeat that. And I'm assuming that most people here uh, are familiar with Bob's biography. The only child of elderly farming uh, parents in wartime County Meath, the teenager discovering a passion for reading in Wesley College, the student utterly immersed in the study of history at Trinity, the graduate getting his first insecure posting in McGee College in Derry while still in his mid-twenties, meanwhile studying studying the Ulster Plantation in Cavan and Armagh as his PhD project. And I think good to note that he was already developing a profound attachment to the city of Derry stroke Londonderry. Bob, I think, liked that pairing and may even have coined it. He nurtured that urban loyalty over the next often traumatic 40 years, a citizen of inner city Derry through thick and thin. Don't tell me that Clarendon Street was outside the walls. I know that. But nevertheless, I still regard it as part of the old city. So finally, I'm not going to try and document uh, Bob's remarkable financial generosity in his latter years, his gifts to the libraries and other heritage institutions in Derry and West Ulster uh, that he so vigorously championed. By extension, the extraordinary and enlightened munificence of his daughter, Laura, has continued uh, this work since 2007 on a vaster scale. And we are reaping a part of that truly bountiful harvest uh, this afternoon. So if I cannot claim to have been an intimate accomplice of Bob, I think we did get to know each other instinctively a very long time ago. We had what I'd like to call an affinity. Reflecting much that was common in our backgrounds, we were both of Derry, and of Trinity, and with that particular sense of humor and sensibility that seems to bond only children, uh, only children of uh, with parents of a certain vintage. Uh, I think um, we had something. Uh, we, we sort of understood each other's uh, uh, some of each other's uh, character almost without having to say too much. I was first introduced to Bob, the postgraduate research student, by a mutual friend around 1964. I was still a schoolboy, wondering about my future. It was, I think, a Sunday afternoon, and Bob was crouched at his work table in a small upstairs flat opposite Guy's restaurant in Baggett Street. His papers and books spread everywhere, the pokey atmosphere completely bohemian. Now, as a teenager, I relished such a scene and kept the image of Bob, the lone scholar, driven by a perverse single-minded interest in reconstructing a distant past. And it almost certainly reinforced my desire to study history at university. Yeah, Bob, thank you. But what I did not witness on that occasion was the other side of Bob Hunter. Bob, the, the gregarious social flaneur, the farmer's son who'd blossomed in the intimate world of 50s and early 60s Trinity with its ubiquitous committees, its hybrid English-Irish-Prankish gentility, a world much closer to, to Lucky Jim Dixon than David Lodge's Philip Swallow. Bob was, it seems, very active 
in the local Fabian Society and the SCM, the Student Christian Movement, uh, also in the History Society, where he launched a short-lived uh, student magazine called Apex. In its first, perhaps only, edition, uh, he wrote a piece on the young James Joyce, judging him the, quote, rebellious child of the sadistic betrayal of Parnell. He didn't follow that one up. Now, in his sixth year in Trinity, and now a young research student, he was profiled in the student paper Trinity News. Quote, he is perhaps the best known student figure in college, it declared. And he has a genuine capacity for creating friendship where little common ground for it seems to exist. He is an accomplished public speaker, a committee man par excellence, and a conscientious holder of office. However, an uncontrolled inability to compress ideas and to overqualify them out of existence <laughs> has occasionally made the execution of these tasks more arduous than it need have been, 1962. But the anonymous writer conceded that as Secretary of Scholars, Bob had been largely responsible for the extension of the time of women in college rooms during the evenings. And the writer sought to dig deeper into Bob's personality. Quote, Despite an extroverted personality, there is little here that is mere affectation. Some would say the briar pipe, only occasionally smoked now, was so at first. The ever-present bonhomie shields a mellowed inferiority complex. More harmless than it sounds. It is an understatement to say that he remains very much of an unresolved paradox. The essence of it is the conflict of a dual public image, either side of it equally valid. His assiduity in historical research implies a withdrawal, which is incompatible with an instinctive drift towards la dolce vita. This penetrating, precociously <laughs> judgmental essay ended by noting how Bob was set for an academic future and is itching to introduce a vast number of innovations in lecturing methods and university administration. The keynote of them is more initiative from below. And as for his research, it noted sniffily that the bounds of his research topic appear so limitless that we can look forward to his being around college for a considerable time to come. Not so. Shortly after the Trinity News profile was published, Bob was already involved in part-time but intensive teaching in McGee College, Derry. McGee offered arts and social science programs but had never received a charter and couldn't award degree, uh, its own degrees. Its students to complete their degree were obliged to migrate across the border to Trinity or across the ban to Queen's. McGee was a small place with a mere 245 undergraduates in 1964 and 27 poorly paid staff. It had a very strange governance structure and was starved of public funds. Yet despite its provincial scale and strong Presbyterian ethos, the college evoked strong affection from many quarters. The former warden of All Souls Oxford, George Adams, then living in retirement nearby, was one of its strongest advocates. And with colleagues like a young Aidan Clark and Desmond McCourt, Bob had not arrived in an, in an intellectual backwater. 
Now, there was talk in the early 60s of a second university for Northern Ireland. And the local expectation was that McGee should be, indeed would be, upgraded to become that institution, a university for West Ulster. Now, a Stormont government inquiry, mm -hmm. chaired by Sir John Lockwood, investigated the rival claims of Derry, Armagh, Craig Evan, and Coleraine to be the preferred site for a second university. When rumours spread at the start of 1965 that Lockwood was going to give thumbs down to Derry, there was a huge public outcry in the city. A cross-party cross forum, chaired by young John Hume, was mobilised with several McGee academics involved. Uh, Bob was perhaps too new or too much on the margins to be publicly involved. But mention the Lockwood report to Bob in later years, and you ignited a fire. For him, Lockwood was a weasel work of betrayal, perversely favouring a greenfield site outside Coleraine and east of the ban for the new university over the magisterial campus in Derry, thereby revealing the narrow interests of a unionist government uh, and depriving Derry of a chance to blossom once again. Now, the truth we now know, thanks to the work of Bob's colleague, Gerard O'Brien, was a little different. There was no retreat across the ban unionist plot, and the Lockwood Committee, strongly English in character and imbued with fashionable English assumptions about higher education development and the, appro and the appropriate locations for new universities, simply failed to appreciate why a university for Derry was such a powerful emotive matter. The agitation for a Derry University, together with the campaign to save Derry's direct rail link to Dublin, created a brief moment of cross-community politics in the city in 64-65, a civic spirit, real or imagined, that in the ghastly years that followed, remained as a golden memory which Bob and many others wistfully invoked. Now, in the Lockwood plan, McGee was to be closed entirely. In fact, the college was kept going on life support for the next two decades, an outstation of the shiny new Coleraine campus. Bob, of course, became an employee of that university, a committed teacher in Derry and a less than comfortable performer in Coleraine, where the history department was principally based. And he certainly never contemplated moving residence to suit the suits. Well, when McGee re-emerged as one of the four campuses of the rebranded University of Ulster in 1984, Bob didn't benefit but remained a gently disaffected observer of the new regime. Still, perhaps, to quote Trinity News, the best-known figure in the college, a teacher extraordinaire and a local institution, but not a university politician. His one-time enthusiasm for committees now found an outlet in local history societies and field clubs, you might say, in outreach, not intrigue. Well, what of Bob the historian? which is what we're supposed to be thinking about this afternoon. The doctoral thesis that was germinating when I first met Bob in Baggett Street was finally submitted in 1967. His supervisor, the lone expert then on the Ulster plantation, was, of course, Theo Moody, who over the previous 20 years had supervised more research students than, than had all his departmental colleagues put together. He had clearly encouraged Bob in his choice of topic, Counties Cavan, and Armagh in the Ulster Plantation. But by the 1960s, Moody's own research interests had migrated towards the 19th century. It seems likely that Bob was very much left to his own devices as the research project evolved. 
Whatever the precise reason, the great work, when it arrived, caused consternation. J.C. Beckett was, I think, the extern, I may be wrong there, but it was the intern and supervisor who seems to have insisted that the work, six years in the making, should only be awarded a master's degree. Theo Moody had a clear sense of what colonial history should be about. And I'm in debt here to, 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 to Kieran Brady and what I'm just saying here, the, the study of great projects devised and imposed from above, whereas Bob peered at plantation history from the ground up from below in all its grisly everyday contingencies and forensic uncertainties. For many, such an academic outcome would have been a humiliation causing them to flee the academic field. For Bob, it seems to have deepened his determination to work, to work on towards a definitive history of the Ulster plantation, however long it took, that would transform the received wisdoms, not least those of his supervisor, as to the reality of Ulster colonization and its evolution up to the 1640s. For a while in the 1970s, he published chapters and sections from the thesis in essay collections and local history journals, the big project always hanging there in the background while his self-deprecating manner hid the hurt caused by the thesis downgrade. And sadly ironic that only posthumously was the thesis finally brought to light in print thanks to what we've been uh, thinking about and to, to David Ed Edwards as its editor. It's exceptional forensic scholarship at last publicly available uh, and the failure to validate it in 1968 seems all the more remarkable. It's now much easier for us to register just how good an historian uh, Bob was with his fine-grained sense of the subtly diverse landscapes uh, of Ulster and his unrivaled appreciation of the untidy and ambiguous fault lines between Planter and Gale. The city of Derry, Bob's city, was of course hideously affected by the Troubles. Among much else, old city businesses and industries vanished the architectural core of the city and the quays swept away by bombs and speculative bulldozers. Republican Derry has cherished its history and the apprentice boys cherish theirs. But there are precious few who've tried to champion an inclusive, scholarly, perhaps revisionist history of the city. A handful have tried to do this, chief among them Bob's longtime colleague in McGee and at one time housemate, uh, the archaeologist Brian Lacey, latterly the creator of the city's Tower Museum and so much else. Perhaps thanks to him, Bob became a sort of part-time urban archaeologist, stroke conservationist too, his sharp eye for telling detail in stone being a kind of transfer from his uh, earlier sharp eye in looking at the 17th century parchment. So there was a great book, perhaps more, waiting in Bob's mind to be written on the social and cultural history of his adopted city, from plantation to partition indeed. Regrettably, that book is still waiting to be written. But when it is written, it will be infused with the memory of Bob Hunter and will be hugely in his debt. Thank you. Okay, so we move on. So thank you very much, David, for that. We'll move on now to the two uh, papers from the um, two doctoral fellowship fellows who've, who've uh, held their fellowship courtesy of the Hunter 
um, fund um, for uh, the last two years. So the first speaker is Dr. Gerard Farrell, um, who's based in the Department of History in Trinity College in Dublin. And Dave Gerard did his PhD um, in Trinity in 2015. Um, and he has already published a book entitled The Mere Irish and Colonization of Ulster, 1570-1641. So his paper today is entitled An Ethno-History of Gaelic Ulster, 1500-1700. Thanks very much. I want to say thanks to Ollie for coming and thanks to, to Bob Hunter's daughter as well for this very generous stipendium scholarship. I was going to say, yeah, just about, I mean, more or less I've said it already about Bob's thesis. It was really when I first looked at it, it was before it was actually published when I was an undergraduate or doing a PhD, I can't remember, but it really was. It's in two huge volumes. Uh, it's better than most published monographs I've read. It was really shocking that it hadn't either been awarded a PhD or published at the time. It was kind of flabbergasted. I'm totally baffled, still am really, uh, why it wasn't awarded. Um, so I'm going to talk today about the main object of my research for the last two years, which is going to be a monograph with this title, at least at the moment, it's a working title, An Ethno-History of Gaelic Ulster, over this very long and ambitious span of time. Um, the postdoc as a whole had a few other different strands out of interest. The official title was Commerce, Consumption and Change in Ulster and the Atlantic World in the same kind of year time span, which reflects the general themes. But um, for the sake of focus here, I'm going to talk about the monograph I'll be producing from the project. So I'll talk mostly about methodology what is ethno-history? Because it might be not be something that's really familiar in Ireland anyway. It's more of a sort of familiar to American historians. Um, and how I'm trying to apply the techniques and the methods of ethno-history to this time and place. Um, rather than go into any sort of a deep narrative account, because most of you, I'm sure, are already familiar with this. Um, the broad outlines are probably much more than that. Um, I won't go too deeply into that. Just to give a brief overview for the sake of neatness and presentation. And, um, and also to stress like what a really dramatic transformation of society this represents of the indigenous population of Ulster from the beginning of the 16th century to the end of the 17th. It really is a sort of world turned upside down in a very literal sense. We're not just talking about English administrators or Scottish administrators coming in and slotting into a sort of pre-existing positions of power and influence in the province. In the long term, we're talking about a real sweeping away of social institutions and um, for the most part, a Gaelic ruling elite, which had used these to maintain its power and their replacement by an entirely different economic and legal system, not to mention the physical imposition of a people with very different cultural practices, um, not the least of them religion, of course, but also economic practices and a different language. Um, but this is, of course, not to say that no members of a Gaelic ruling, Gaelic ruling elite remained. It's just that they were no longer sort of these local rulers, sovereigns, whatever word you want, like to use, there could be a lot of debate about that. Um, from now on, they're landlords, and not particularly good landlords, successful landlords, if you like, um, from that point on. So Ulster at the start of the 17th, 16th century, sorry, was the part of the island least touched by English government control. It certainly wasn't hermetically sealed off from the outside world, although you can get an idea of this map from the 1520s, how little they knew about the place. I mean, Everything that's Carol Fergus, which is, it looks like everything from there westward is squeezed into that. That's supposed to be the top half of Ireland there. Um, 
It certainly wasn't sealed off from the outside world, though, but whatever control the government in Dublin and by extension London exercised, it was really exercised through the medium of this Gaelic elite, uh, at the apex of which were the O'Neills of Tyrone, of course, and the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell, uh, Donegal. Um, the medieval earldom of Ulster, which had been created by the Normans, the Anglo-Normans, uh, was now merged with the crown and existed largely on paper in East Ulster, really, except for East Ulster, a few uh, pockets or outposts like Carrickfergus. Um, and in fact, the king had been, since the 15th century, really, the time of Henry O'Neill, um, who died in the 1480s, um, more or less accepted the position at times of the O'Neills as overlord over Ulster and gave him sort of tacit permission, really, to wage war against those who didn't pay him tribute, uh, as long as he restrained his people from attacking the Pale. So society among the Gaelic Irish in Ulster was very was largely organised around subsistence agriculture and producing a surplus for this elite. Um, there was some cultivation of oats and barley, but it was very pastoral, and much of the population west of the ban. There's not much use looking at this map to understand what west of the ban means, but uh, uh, at least at least west of the ban, they were practising a form of um, seasonal migration. They called bullying, or the English at the time called bullying anyway, uh, what anthropologists would call transhumans, I suppose. Uh, surplus produce was channeled to this ruling elite in the form of tribute and hospitality, which they extracted on circuit uh, by billeting their soldiers on the population. And they redistributed themselves to their retainers uh, through the medium of feasting. And, and uh, what little trade did go on with the outside world went on mainly through uh, was conducted by this elite for personal consumption, mainly um, best known. We don't know a lot about this really, or at least I haven't been able to uncover a great deal of information about this. The most mostly often cited example is the O'Donnell who would trade his the fish caught off the coast of Donegal uh, with Bay um, of Biscay, Western France or Southern France, um, in exchange for wine, which of course you can't get your hands on in Ulster. Um, so. This commercial activity was fairly limited, as I said. The circle of money wasn't widespread. Although, as I said, it wasn't sealed off. Places like Cavan and places touching the pale, there certainly was a more active market economy and they, money was in use there. Um, so both the O'Neills and the O'Donnells were embroiled, obviously, in their own interminable power struggles uh, at the start of the 16th century. They fought each other for supremacy and to install their own candidates as rulers of the other sept. Um, at the start of the century, the O'Donnells were in quite a powerful position uh, relative to the O'Neills, but really only as chief vassals of the uh, Fitzgerald Earls of Kildare, one of which was the Lord Deputy at the time. Um, and, and so they, the Fitzgeralds kind of exercised the king-making role uh, among the Gaelic Irish uh, in Ulster up until, for the first few decades anyway, up until the Silk and Thomas uh, events. The O'Neills were not the power really they had once been at this time, and the title of O'Neill was moving at this at the beginning of the century between the various sons of uh, Henry, who, as I said, died, I think it was 1484, I'm pretty sure, but once I remember a date correctly. Um, branches, these various branches of these sons, they would have their strongholds, first in Armagh, then later on further west in what we call Straban. Now, and then kind of settling, and if you can use the word settling when you're talking about Gaelic lordships, uh, in Dungannon, we'd come back at O'Neill who became O'Neill in 1519. Um, he continues this endless struggle with the O'Donnells and through his close links to the Fitzgeralds, but also his timely abandonment of them. Uh, at the time of Silk and Thomas, uh, he managed to ingratiate himself with the Lord Deputy to the extent that they gave him the earldom of Tyrone. 
and had his illegitimate son Matthew made Baron of Dungannon. So there's no need to go into the ins and outs of Shane O'Neill's struggles with these to become Chief O'Neill, uh, who he had Matthew killed, and then his struggles with the Scots who were settling in North Antrim, the Macdonalds, um, and then of course this very bloody intervention in the 1570s with the Earl of Essex in East Ulster, um, and then the Nine Years' War. Just to say that the second half of this century, and it involves increasingly brutal war, involving the mobilisation of elements of Gaelic society that hadn't been under arms before. Uh, it, it increasingly involves the killing of non-combatants and the destruction of the food supply. And uh, this kind of war becomes almost constant in the last few decades of the century. It's important to remember, I think, when we if we reflect upon the breakdown of Gaelic society in Ulster, really, and what's sometimes presented as a curious lack of resistance to the plantation. If you throw in the flight of the Earls as well, the removal of the sort of element of the elite that might have led resistance I don't think it's as curious as it first appears, really, that there wasn't much resistance initially, at least, to the plantation. Uh, this was a society and a landscape was ravaged by war, famine, a plague, some kind of plague brought out towards the end of the Nine Years' War. And, as I said, whatever element of the ruling elite uh, that might have led resistance had been removed by the time of the plantation. So you could argue that the damage had already been done by the time of the plantation. But conversely, you could argue that Gaelic society survived for several decades, really, after the project of 1610 uh, went into execution, but just sort of underground and with its, you know, with its head cut off, um, if it's useful to think of the elite of society as its head, maybe it's not particularly useful. Um, there's a great deal of evidence that the everyday lives of people of the Irish and Ulster, the non-landowning class, didn't change as dramatically as you might think in the years up to 1641. Cattle continued to be the mainstay of the economy. Many Irish remained outside the commercial economy, raising cattle for subsistence and barter, often working for colonists instead of paying tribute to a tierna, but nevertheless being paid and the right to graze their cattle on their land. In other words, in economic relations that didn't differ massively from the kind of economic relations they'd had with the Gaelic lords. But of course, this new class of rulers didn't enjoy the legitimacy of tradition and the sanction of hereditary uh, loyalty to certain sects had to each other, and the colonists were resented. Um, which explodes in 1641, and in the years that follow, the province becomes a virtual battlefield. It's full of, in the 1640s, people either fleeing or joining these itinerant crates uh, who accompany the Irish in their arms. When the dust settles after the Cromwellian plantation, there's practically no Catholic landowners left in Ulster. Um, this, you can really talk about the sweeping away of the last vestiges of a ruling class at this stage. Um, but this doesn't, of course, mean that the, the end of a, a Catholic, non-landowning non class of Irish in the, in the province, uh, even if a large wave of migration of Scots in the 1690s maybe shifts the demographics kind of in their favour. Um, you could say, I mean, I've heard it said anyway that the sort of frontier closed in Ulster at that point, at the end, only at the end of the 17th century. I think what they mean when they say this is that um, it was only at that point the colony became established for good. It couldn't. It was so firmly established that there was no fear of it being uprooted as had happened in the 1640s or nearly happened. Um, of course, that's only clear with the benefit of hindsight, but hindsight should be acknowledged, but I mean, it doesn't, it's not something we can just forego because it's just too beneficial. Um, so, and of course, even after, even into the 17th century, I mean, they were bullying, they were practicing seasonal migration in Donegal up until the 19th century in small pockets. Only when the population increased and people were moving on to marginal land did they actually stop for good. 
But we know very little about these people uh, who are the, my main research interest uh, because they don't leave much trace in the sources. So what about taking a different approach? So this is what I'm looking at with ethnohistory. This is where it comes in. I'll just say a few words about ethnohistory because it isn't something you hear a lot about in Irish history. It's something, it basically, it emerged in America among historians who were trying to elucidate the history of Native Americans facing eastwards, if you like, uh, in a less Eurocentric way. Uh, implying that I think previous generations of historians had always looked at the Indians facing west from the European point of view, uh, at Indians as savages um, and hostile and an obstacle to progress and manifest destiny and what have you. Um, some of ethnohistory's most well-known practitioners, I have a slide here, uh, you can see the names there, they, James Axtell especially is a very prolific writer and Francis Jennings who I think is one of my personal favourites. Um, they sought to overcome these difficulties faced by the sources, which are almost entirely hostile and entirely written by Europeans, and dealing for, with the people, because the North American Indians had absolutely no written sources. There was no writing in the North of America up until uh, the point of European contact, obviously, and then not even until really the 18th century when some um, Indians educated in mission schools begin to write accounts of their own. There's nothing, you know. Um, the only people, I think, with writing in America at the time, Central America, I know for sure. I'm not sure about South America, but definitely nothing in North America. So increasingly, they realized that other methods and material could be used to try and glean something of the Indians' culture from this time period. Um, for example, like most pre-literate cultures, the Indians had a very rich oral history, which has been tapped to some extent by anthropologists as a complement to scholarly attempts to reconstruct the Native Americans' history, uh, what's been discovered about Indians' culture and perceptions of their own past can be used to corroborate and shed light on the life of Native peoples at the time of their contact with Europeans. Of course, you have to be cautious when using these kind of information. You can't assume unchanged cultural practices between the 17th century and the time when Europeans or American, after American independence, Americans, um, found Indian culture or saw it as something worth recording, which is really only in the 19th century. Um, there's an, obviously a danger inherent in reading these practices and beliefs back into the past and assuming things haven't changed. But if they're used with skill and discernment, it's a very fruitful complementary source of information about the past, especially if you corroborate it with maybe with European uh, observations from the time. Um, another fruitful alternative to written sources is, of course, archaeological evidence as it relates to Indians both before and after contact which has mushroomed in recent decades. Uh, this can be used in the same way as a complement to European observations at the time, um, which are often vague and misleading, but often contain, contain some kernel of truth. I mean, they're often not necessarily deliberate attempts to mislead posterity. They're just um, misunderstandings and informed by entrocentrism. Um, so why is it worthwhile applying these methods to Gaelic Ulster? Um, well, for me personally, it represents another sort of angle to look at a subject, the Native Irish, which I covered in the obligatory plug for the book. Um, uh, I tried to cover in the, in the book uh, over a shorter period of time. Um, I was looking for a different angle sort of to approach the subject, which if you take the longer time frame, um, and again, I'm referring specifically to Ulster, you really do appreciate the depth of the transformation that I described above as it affected the lives of Native peoples in Ulster. And an ethno-history offers, I think, an interesting approach to this. Um, historians of Gaelic Ireland, we should remind ourselves, we often bemoan the lack of sources and see how, you know, things could be much worse. I mean, unlike historians of the Cherokee or the Iroquois, 
who have nothing to go on from the native people. Ireland was not a pre-literate society, and we have a certain amount of annals, bardic poetry, and so forth. Uh, so if you look at it in a sort of glass half full kind of way and compare the task ahead uh, to you know face that, that face and someone trying to recreate the social life of Native Americans, you realize we're relatively lucky really in having these sources. So what I'm going to do in the time that remains is just to try and demonstrate what an ethno history of Ulster would look like, um, how it would work in practice and how it would be novel, I hope, by demonstrating how some of this source material might be used. So it, we start with the more traditional type of material, the written word, you can divide that into that produced by English observers in Ireland or, or Anglo or Old English, if you like, and that produced by the Irish themselves in Irish, the religious communities, the Bardic poets, and then their successors, sometimes referred to as the non-professional poets, once the, 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 the elite that had patronised the Bardic uh, poets went into decline. Um, this should be noted, though, there's another category of written sources um, which is accounts, which I find interesting, which is accounts that come from outside these islands, Europeans, French, Spanish, Italians, which are very interesting, I think, in that they are often free of the sort of preoccupation with the, you know, the national rivalry, if you want to call it that, that characterizes Irish and English sources very often. Um, what I mean by this is English sources are often uh, informed by an unthinking hostility towards the Gaelic Irish. I mean, the word Irish almost never occurs without the word wild or enemy before it. Um, whereas, and Gaelic sources too are often appear preoccupied with the Bardic poetry, sort of famously, frustratingly preoccupied with the, just praising the patron, um, although sometimes that's overplayed by people who dismiss it. Um, and then there's something like Geoffrey Keating, for example, which is fantastic and it's interesting, but it's very preoccupied with the national reputation of the country and defending it against English, right, or Welsh in the most notorious example. Um, so, and that's all very interesting literature for a certain type of history, but what gets lost in these works, I think, sometimes is this sort of interesting, kind of banal, everyday detail, which I'm interested in, you know, manners, customs, economic patterns. Um, I think I often find in European, there's not a lot of sources like this, but European travellers in Ireland, they exhibit a genuine curiosity for a place, which is, to them, the edge of the known world. And they have less of an axe to grind, I think, very often. So you get an Italian, uh, Francesco Cirigatti, my apologies to anyone who can actually speak Italian from pronunciation, who is the... Papal Nuncio visiting Ireland in 1517 on pilgrimage to St. Patrick's Purgatory in Loch Derg, County Donegal. You don't get the traditional animus, I think, towards the Irish on account of just of them not being English. On the other hand, he does make very disparaging remarks towards the Gaelic areas of the country, which he describes as full of thieves and dangerous, and its ruling elite, who he describes as little more worthy than our peasants. Uh, these comments are clearly a reference to the poverty of these areas and the, what from him, coming from Italy, uh, is a very low material standard of living probably. He goes into the routine of the purgatory itself, which is very amusing. If you haven't read the source, have a look at it. It's very, I found it quite funny actually, um, because it really is an alien. It really is the edge of the world to this guy. Um, this is, he gets this impression of intense religiosity, that's the right word, um, when he stays at a, a little town in County Down. Um, he couldn't leave the house because the people, the Irish, they would follow him, were following him around trying to grab pieces of his clothes and kiss them. And um, while he noted how religious the Irish, the Gaelic Irish were, he also remarks upon the fairly lax attitudes to private property. So he writes, um, well, he, he uses the word thieves, which might be dismissed, I think, as a sort of casual slur um, in the work of, say, Fines Morrison or someone like that. But I think... There's a ring of truth, I think, to his observation that the, the Irish do not regard theft as a crime and do not punish it. And he goes on to say that the Irish regard 
we, we, and I'd be interested to know who he means by we. Does he mean Italians? You know, does he mean continental Europeans or, or just civilized people in general? Um, the Irish regard us as, as brutal because we make private property the gifts of fortune and that they live in accordance with nature because all things ought to be in common. Now, obviously, ascribing some kind of primitive communism to the Ar Gaelic Irish is very dubious, but they did have different attitudes to pro property, um, private property, if you want to call it that. It's clear from the way the Gaelic economy was structured, which I gave some kind of very simplistic description there at the start. For example, property wasn't necessarily something private to be exchanged in a market which determined its value in relation to other goods. It was often a source of social capital and prestige. It was a marker of status and a lever of power, which it was socially permissible to take from others, depending on who you were and under the circumstances. Um, so in this sense, there's a grain of truth, I think, to Chirigati's observations here. Uh, if you corroborate them with other sources, obviously, it's just that the Irish themselves, I don't think, would have called it theft. Uh, they wouldn't have used that word to describe what was going on. Um, and of course, it wasn't all types of theft uh, that we're talking about here, only certain kinds. Um, stealing each other's cattle, the institution of the cattle raid, uh, was a time-honored tradition of augmenting your power and provoking battle with a neighboring lordship to make your reputation, kind of. Um, I mentioned Fines Morrison. He wrote nearly a century after Chirigati complaining about cattle raiding, which he just regarded as theft. He described it as the result of an innate laziness on the part of the Irish and their refusal to live by honest means. Now, there's more to it than this, of course, but you can see how these sources, even Fines Morrison, who you could say is biased, um, it can still be used to build up a picture of what's going on, how the Irish related to property and material possessions, even from sources which misrepresent these practices. I mean, it should add, of course, what strikes us as curious is not only the way it was sometimes socially permissible to take away the property of others, uh, even celebrated in the poetry, um, but it was also about giving it away in sort of extravagant shows of largesse and hospitality, which was another marker of a powerful and prestigious ruler. And having studied the Indians a lot, the North, especially the Iroquois and the, Indian, the Algonquians who lived in New England, you can't help noticing the similarities here to the people there, because Europeans were often really puzzled when they came when they saw the rulers, they were often uh, looked, they were poorer than their subjects. They often looked like they lived like beggars and they couldn't understand this. It was because their power and their prestige and the respect accorded them came, it came from giving away everything they had, basically. Um, so for my money, though, the real interesting, as I said, the really interesting details are the banal, uh, the small things, almost you mentioned in passing, which I find particularly valuable for my work. Uh, you know, the cheapness of fish he observes in Gaelic parts of Donegal um, and the diet of oat and bread and milk and not much else uh, everywhere else in Ulster. Um, the description also clothes and uh, the appearance of the Irish was particularly valuable given the very, it's a very poor visual record we have of Gaelic Ireland really, I think, um, in the late Middle Ages. Um, shorts were often dyed with saffron or urine uh, from the neck down to the feet. Uh, shaved heads with beards, a felt hat, and of course the omnipresent mantle, uh, the big furry cloak that you get such great rants uh, in, in Spencer um, about them. Accounts like this of, of non-Irish Catholics in Ireland are also interesting because they're not coloured by the same anti-popery which like, did distort the understanding of someone like Vines Morrison or Barnaby Rich even more so. Um, but at the same time, they're still profoundly disapproving and judgmental about Irish culture. Uh, it would be interesting to look at examples, I think, of English Catholics uh, in whose accounts is evidence of sort of uneasy mix of ethnocentrism and yet sympathy in one way for fellow Catholics, 
one of my favourites of these is um, William Good, uh, who his observations on the Irish around Limerick uh, on, in the 1560s are embedded in William Camden's uh, monumental uh, work Britannica, and Good observed in horror uh, the widespread clerical concubinage or clerical marriage and the continuation of what were clearly sort of holdovers from a, a pagan past, the respect accorded to wise women and their, their cures, and the lingering belief in the divinity of the moon and certain animals like wolves, um, bizarre superstitions like the belief, if you own a horse, you should not eat an odd number of eggs, um, things like this, uh, which I, I love these little details. I mean, uh, and if these are observations. There's another one about, uh, he describes how the Irish, when a horse died, they would cut off the legs, and hang them up in the house for months on end, and would sort of, uh, he said, they were esteemed as a hallowed and sacred relic. Um, if these were observations made by a Puritan like Barnaby Rich, I would be inclined to see them as merely gross exaggerations or attempts to show that the Catholics uh, were no better than pagans, really, and that they hardly qualified as Christians. But coming from another Catholic, I think they, I give them more credence. And reading good, you really do get the impression they're kind of like the early observations of an anthropologist uh, um, out among the Irish in, in County Clare and the surrounding area. Uh, I get a sense a lot, reading a lot of this stuff as well, about the religious practices of the Irish before the influence of the Counter-Reformation sort of sank in when you could debate when that was, um, is that it probably re resembles something like the religious syncretism in Bolivia uh, or places like that to this day, where um, attributes of the mother goddess uh, Pachamama, for example, this is uh, blended with the Virgin Mary. I quite like this picture. It's that's uh, the, the Cerro Rico, the the mountain they got the Spanish got all the silver from. I think this painting's from the 18th century, and you have saint, Christian saints and religious figures at the top, and then the mountain is Pachamama, is the earth, but she also looks like the Virgin Mary, and then you have um, Spanish authorities below, and then in kind of small in the mountain you have an Inca king. So it's a really interesting mix of cultures. Um, there's more going on there, you know, in Ireland than just Protestant versus Catholic, Irish versus British. Um, these hostilities are, are intersecting uh, with other tensions and differences, ethnic, class. Uh, it's not just about one or the other. Um, so what about the kind of sources produced by the subject people here, the Irish language material? Um, some manuscripts, some printed, uh, some translated, but a lot not. Um, they're a huge challenge, I mean, even for someone who grew up affluent Irish, um, even more so for someone like me who has had to acquire Irish as an adult, basically. Um, bad Irish, uh, because it wasn't very good in school, basically. But uh, the, the riches in the literature, the more, the more you begin to delve into it, the more you realise it's worth it. I mean, it should be noted there's far more than just bardic poetry at our disposal. I mean, especially in the 17th century, when the bardic poets begin to be eclipsed, uh, there's, um, there's all sorts of other uh, genres develop, prose, meditations and politics, uh, religion, personal matters, uh, love and loneliness. You also have the annals going further back. So you, can, you sometimes come up against this idea that there's just bardic poetry and it's very narrowly focused and it's definitely not the case. So you look at a few representative examples and see what you can glean from them, at least what I can glean from them for my purposes about things that tell us about society and how it was changing. One of the changes that occurred was the declining application of Brehon law, as you have it in the medieval legal tracts, uh, things like the decree Gaulach and uh, 
which originated from the ninth century and were still being transcribed. But clearly, I mean, the experts in this, Kenneth Nichols and D.A. Binchy, pointed out that these were antiquarian studies even then in the 16th century. Um, but still, the fact that they were still being transcribed and still being adapted and worked on suggests to me that they served some kind of function as a, maybe as a source of maxims and guidelines to judgments uh, and maybe as a guide to how society should function, maybe not as how it did function, but how it should maybe ideally function. The same goes even more so for the character Neil, the book of O'Neill's rights, which is a book outlining the rights and relationships between the ruling O'Neill's in, in Tyrone and the various sort of subordinate sects around them, uh, probably emerged in the 14th century. Um, but didn't take the form we have it now until the early 16th, and was still being worked on at the time of Torlock Linnock in the 1570s. So it still had some kind of fortress, and it's interesting to explore just why are people still working on these things, but definitely Breton law is not applicable in everyday life. So we know with the collapse of a Gaelic elite with the plantation, I mean, the English common law could be said to take root during the 17th century, but again, not overnight. Legal tracts and annals cease to be of great relevance, really, at that stage. I find this, the most promising Irish material is these great prose works, like the the wonderful Parliament uh, Clontamas, uh, the Parliament of Clan Thomas, which is a satire, clearly written by someone from the declining Gaelic elite, probably Munster, and then the sequel written for the North, uh, North Meath, somewhere later on in the century, definitely after Cromwell, probably after the Restoration. The Parliament Clontamas makes fun of the colonisers. Um, but really, most of its satire is directed at the expense of those native Irish, the writer regarded as low-born sort of upstarts who are taking advantage of the new order to rise above their station in life. And um, they're dismissed as the the clone Thomas, the, the the progeny of Thomas, uh, which is shorthand for all the all the vulgar people who had no values or honour, who were prepared to dress like the English and talk like them and work for them if it would help them get ahead in life. So you've complaints about smoking tobacco, wearing breeches and colours like blue and red, um, which is all great stuff for me. I mean, I, I, it's, it tells you what kind of clothes people are wearing, their attitude to the clothes, what kind of clothes they were aspiring to wear, and the kind of meaning they ascribe to them. Um, as I said, the first part is from Munster, and the second part is for the not, but you can still use, collaborate, corroborate it with other accounts, and you realise that a lot of this applies to Ulster too. Basically, just to, on the Irish sources, I mean, I think no one should, you can't really attempt this task without mastering these sources. I didn't used to be convinced of this, but especially from reading Vincent Morley's work, I think I've become more and more convinced that you really do have to master these sources, and, and it takes time. It's a, it's a big challenge, but I think it becomes inescapable that you have to really to do this job. But you move on to folkloric material. Given the decline of an Irish-speaking lead in Ulster, as the 17th century turns to the 18th, I think in many ways the most promising material from this period is songs and things like that, folklore material, basically stories and songs, the kind of stuff uh, contained in uh, Henri O. Morghisas, uh, I think it's 200 songs from Ulster, basically. It's a collection of 200 songs from Ulster. Many of them are not really relevant for my courses, but some I've found some great stuff in there, and they were collected by him long after this period. Many were collected in the 19th century, uh, but many clearly have their origins in folk memory going back to the 18th century or, and they concern events in the late 17th century. Um, so using this kind of folkloric evidence, I think, is maybe most controversial in a way because they're the most requiring of defense in a way as a source material, as I said, kind of inspired by ethno-historians working on America in this. Uh, it's valuable for recollections that people have with their ideas of what happened in their past, their memory of cultural practices, 
or things that were still even going on. Um, we're looking basically for material you could use to elucidate conditions in the late, late 17th century. So obviously the closer you can find material to that era, the better. Um, a good example, we go through one example, a chapbook which tells us about, I think, the heroic status acquired, uh, accorded to outlaws and people who are described earlier on in history as Cairn, later on they became to be a kind of the same category of people came to be described as Tories and Rapparees. Um, so we'll talk about one, uh, this chapbook by a chap called uh, Cosgrave, um, about, and mainly we're going to just focus on the uh, the Armagh Highwayman Redmond O'Hanlon, who was active in the 1660s and he evaded capture until he was betrayed and killed by another O'Hanlon in 1681. Um, so I read a, a passage from it. This is a great read. Um, uh, this is from the introduction, I think, where he's just talking generally about Redmond and his sort of modus operandi. Um, Redmond had a much greater antipathy to the English than to the Scotch or Irish, for he was always kind to his countrymen and made a bargain both with them and the North Country peddlers and also just acknowledged his jurisdiction all, all over the kingdom, alleging for excess that as he was a reduced gentleman, he hoped his countrymen would not refuse to pay him tribute towards his maintenance. Uh, what this tells us is there's a continuing perception of the elite status of some kind and an entitlement to tribute on the part of certain Irish septs. The O'Hanlons were the rulers of Ori or the Barony or the sort of easternmost part of Armagh on the border of County Down. Um, it's also kind of evident that O'Hanlon and his contemporaries, some of them his contemporaries, and even readers of this chapbook later, this was published later on in the 18th century, saw a political aspect to what the authorities no doubt just regarded as criminality. He only robbed the English, apparently. He was admired by many of the dispossessed Irish, considered a hero. He was seen as a sort of a dissident figure, um, even if his activity was probably mostly self-serving from our point of view. Um, a source like this is great because it gives us a hint of how things appeared from not so much for the content of the events within, but how things appeared from the point of view of the lower classes, the poorer Irish living in Ulster uh, as agricultural labourers or tenants who've left very little else to elucidate their position. Um, it shows us that there was a vast underclass there, descendants of those who had lost their lands in the plantation or who had never had lands and who didn't really do well in the colonial economy. These people have kind of been forgotten in a way, partly because they're invisible in the sources and also because uh, I think that we often base our ideas about the native Irish in plantation society based on what does survive about them, and that's often about the few that did receive lands and didn't do too badly, um, and we tend to think of them as the whole, but they're not really, they're only a small minority of the whole. Um, works like these were reportedly reprinted and reprinted into the 19th century and became a part of a sort of unofficial head school curriculum, uh, prolonging the folk memory of characters and events going back to the 17th century uh, in the case of Redmond O'Hanlon. So uh, one more passage just because I, I really like these. Uh, in imitation of Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, O'Hanlon took upon him either the title of Protector of the Rights and Properties of his benefactors, Contributors, Chief Ranger of the Mountains, Surveyor General of the High Roads of Ireland, or Lord Examiner of all passengers, committing such villainies and barbarities and sturdy travellers as you call them as were never heard of before. I won't, I won't read out the whole thing. I love the passage, Lord Examiner of all passengers. Um, it's quite humorous. It kind of reminds me of the, the black, some of the black humour in the depositions, um, the insurgents putting cows on trial and stuff like that to sort of make fun of English justice, um, staging these sort of mock trials. And you get a sort of a, a kind of a glimpse into the darkness of, of the hidden Ireland, of the Daniel Corkery called it. Um, 
for those who might contend, I suppose the folklore and folk stories and songs are not really to be trusted. I would argue it's a source, and like any source, it has its attendant skills that need to be applied. I mean, for a long time, people wouldn't touch the depositions because they were regarded as unreliable, but we've learned that there's certain skills that uh, you need to apply when using them, and they've become a fantastic source for social history at the time. Finally, I want to consider uh, the value of archaeological evidence, which is surprisingly underutilised, I think, as well, by historians uh, of late medieval Ireland. Um, there's an enormous amount out there of research and published work concerning 16th and 17th century remains in Ulster, and I don't think it's been thoroughly examined in the light of social history to a great extent. People like Audrey Horning, for example, have shown the way. I'll go give one or two examples. First of all, Maureen Alinshig has used an examination of the built environment in pre-plantation Donegal to map out the hierarchy of power, the lordship of the O'Donnells, subordinate units ruled by his Uriha. Um, she's also noted the relative unimportance of castles in the O'Donnell lordship, and we can make all sorts of observations based on this, such as the fact that land holding was relatively uh, unfragmented, which suggests a very strong hold on power by the O'Donnells until the 17th century swept them away. Um, Neil Lynch has also noted the relative unimportance of castles as venues for social occasions in Donegal or in ceremonies, suggesting that inauguration ceremonies and feasts and the like were often held in the open air or in temporary structures, which is really surprising when you think about how much rain they get in that part of the country. Uh, moving into the plantation period, Audrey Horning's work on the excavation of the site of Mavanagher, the Londonderry Plantation village on the Ban, has uh, shown both the Irish living on the fringes of plantation settlements, which were really not intended for them, were adopting aspects of the material culture of the colonists, while at the same time they're clinging, clinging very steadfastly to other aspects that hadn't changed in centuries. So some of the pots found there, and I think it's this site this refers to, um, were of a type that hadn't really changed much since the 13th century. On the other hand, some of the other pots they were clearly using were from Devon, and they were quite modern at the time. So the built environment can tell us a great deal. Cultural influences are also passing the other way. Uh, the architecture of Plantation Ulster as native Irish, late medieval styles of tower house are incorporated into the designs of some plantation dwellings. And the, the fortified nature of many uh, plantation bu buildings built by the colonists themselves suggests to me a kind of a continuing, persistently antagonistic nature, uh, relations between the Irish, uh, the native and newcomer, if you like. So that's about all I have. Uh, I think time for, for today, but that gives you some outline of the monograph that will emerge from this, this research and sort of broad outlines for it. For a fellow who uh, received an RJ Hunter uh, postdoctoral um, bursary, um, and this is Dr. David Heffernan. Um, who undertook his study in Queen's University in Belfast. Um, David's uh, monograph from his PhD thesis, Debating Tudor Policy in 16th Century Ireland Reform Treatises and Political Discourse, has uh, recently been published this year by Manchester University Press. And his second, uh, a second book will come out later this year um, which is Walter Devereux, First Earl of Essex and the Colonization of Northeast Ulster, 1573-76. So David is going to talk today about the work he's been doing on the early history of the plantation um, uh, in, in the early 17th century in Queens. So his paper is entitled 
Goldsmiths Company of London and the London Dairy Plantation under James I. Okay. Uh, thanks, Mary. So to begin today, I'd just like to thank the members of the uh, the RJ Hunter Committee for awarding me with the two-year postdoctoral fellowship to to undertake the research on the early history of the Ulster Plantation at Queen's University Belfast. Um, I also wish to thank Miss Laura Hunter Houghton for generously endowing the committee with the funds, which have allowed myself, Gerard, and others to undertake research through the committee's grants over the past few years. My um, thanks also to the Academy, particularly Orla Ford and Julie Clark, for organising today's event and administering the fellowship over the past two years. Lastly, but not least, I thank Mary O'Dowd for mentoring the project at Queen's. Okay, so I'll engage in a bit of brazen self-advertising, which is already, I'm sure you see, some of you saw the leaflets um, on the book that I have coming out uh, with Four Courts Press in November. Now, the, the reason why I did um, bring those along today is that in a sense, it's actually a product of the RJ Hunter Committee because that project started through a research travel grant that I received in 2015. So it's just as an example of the uh, end products, I suppose, that result from the funding. So the paper I'm giving today is effectively a case study which will form a small section of the wider book project I've been working on for the last two years. The book will explore the theory and practice of plantation during the first three decades of the Ulster Plantation up to the insurrection of 1641, though with a primary focus on the reign of James I. Through this project, I'm aiming to identify the patterns whereby the plantation developed across the six counties involved during the early Stuart period. It's quite clear that the plantation met with strikingly different levels of success and failure in different regions at this time. No previous study has attempted to analyse these patterns across the whole of the six planted counties and the 160 or so individual estates allotted to British undertakers. So in doing so, the book aims to assess how issues of regionality and the background and efforts of individual grantees affected the development of the plantation on individual estates and in doing so, determine how successfully the plantation theory was actually put into practice. This is, I believe, a worthwhile endeavour as the Ulster Plantation was arguably the foremost act of social, demographic and cultural engineering attempted in early modern Europe, and as such analysis of the relative success or failure of it will reveal much about how colonisation and plantation could transform a specific region in Europe at this time. In turn, I believe this can inform us about state building at this time, and indeed the limitations of the early modern state. So the case study I'm presenting today is on the Goldsmiths Company of London and their estate in London Derry. I've opted to present a case study on a portion of the London Derry plantation for a specific reason. As I've been proceeding with the research for this project, what has become wholly clear is that there is a wildly disproportionate survival of material for the six different counties. In particular, the material which is extant for the study of the London Derry plantation far eclipses that for any of the other five counties. For instance, the Irish papers of the Drapers Company, which are held by the Public Records Office of Northern Ireland, contain over 300 documents on their Irish estate between 1609 and 1641. So these comprise correspondence and also a large amount of estate records, which allow for a fulsome study of this particular company's holdings. Uh, a similar collection of documents um, that Nicholas has looked quite extensively at in making Ireland British, 
is available for the study of the haberdasher's proportion amongst the papers of the farmer of that estate, Sir Robert McClelland, Baron Kirk Cudbright, in the Scottish Records Office in Edinburgh. These collections, though, are far eclipsed by the huge volume of documents relating to the London Dairy Plantation in London, primarily at the Guildhall Library. The great majority of this material remains unexplored and relatively unknown to historians. Indeed, as this project has gone on, one of my primary concerns has become to explore these records in some depth, and I do envisage down the line a number of separate articles on the companies and their Irish estates will also result from the project. But to return to today's topic, uh, so many of you will probably have noticed that the title is a conscious imitation of uh, Hunter's article entitled The Fishmonger's Company of, of London and the London Dairy Plantation, 1609 to 1641, published in, the, in 1999 in the Dairy Stroke London Dairy volume of the History and Society series. So Hunter's paper on the fishmonger's estate was a model for how work on the London Dairy estate should be conducted with precision and exhaustive empiricism. So I would argue is possibly kind of the difference between Moody and Hunter to a certain extent. Um, the paper that follows, and this is certainly not false modesty, makes no pretense to being on a par with that magisterial case study, but hopefully it serves to provide some original details on not just the goldsmith's estate in the county, but also the sources available for the study of this particular livery company in London. So in the late spring of 1609, the government of James I, led by Robert Cecil, first Earl of Salisbury, began courting the mercantile community of the City of London to undertake a role in the incipient plantation of much of the province of Ulster in Ireland. The scheme devised was for the city to be granted the majority of the county of Coleraine in the north of the province, along with the barony of Lochine Sholan in the north of Tyrone. So, just to give a sense of the actual county makeup. This region benefited from ample natural resources and, more importantly, numerous natural harbours and ports. Consequently, two towns had emerged there prior to the plantation at Derry and Coleraine. Given the mercantile and economic potential of the region, it was believed that London's merchant community would be an ideal grantee of this portion of Ulster. The city companies were initially reluctant to undertake the plantation of the region. However, after a deputation sent by them to Ulster in the late summer of 1609 reported positively on the feasibility of planting the region, they agreed to do so. Formal articles of plantation were signed between the city and the Crown on the 28th of January 1610. Accordingly, the county of Coleraine and the barony of Lockheed Sholan were joined together into the newly created county of London Derry, in which the city companies were given a primary stake with some lands apportioned to the Church of Ireland and local servitors such as Thomas Phillips and Captain Edward Doddington. In return for these lands, the city covenanted to quickly develop the towns of Coleraine and Derry into walled settlements, each replete with several hundred housing units. Okay. So these in brief are the well-known circumstances whereby the city of London became involved in planting London Derry. The involvement of the goldsmiths is perhaps less well understood and is intrinsically connected with the financing of the London Derry plantation. So the initial agreement between the Crown and the city envisaged that £20,000 would be needed to develop the towns of Derry and Coleraine and meet the city's other obligations. 
to raise this subscription, or to raise this amount, subscriptions were sold from the city livery companies. These monetary demands generally met with stiff resistance from a mercantile community that was unenthusiastic about the potential fiscal returns from investing in Ireland. It was even more difficult to collect two further instalments of 20,000 in the summer of 1611 and a third again of 20,000 in 1613 as costs spiralled. Thus, to sweeten the deal, the Irish Society, which had been established in London and charged with oversight of the London Dairy Plantation, offered to grant estates to the companies in return for their contributions towards the £60,000 eventually raised. In total, some 55 companies invested in the plantation. However, for the purposes of organisation, it was determined that the 12 major livery companies of the city would be granted these estates, with the other 43 companies acting as sub-companies in their interests. Thus, to the mercers, merchant tailors, soldiers, skinners, fishmongers, vintners, haberdashers, cloth workers, drapers, grocers, ironmongers, and goldsmiths companies, were allotted the 12 estates in the county of Londonderry. The estates were eventually divided and allotted to the 12 companies in December 1613, over three years after the initiation of the plantation. So this was done by lot, um, something which was actually proposed for the whole of the plantation in the planning stage, but was eventually um, not followed through with. So the goldsmiths were assigned lot number one, the origins of the Worshipful, Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths, or just the Goldsmiths Company, lie at least as far back as the 12th century when the first references to a guild or fraternity of workers in gold and silver in London are found. The company received its first royal charter in 1327, and its monopolisation and control of the trade of goldsmithing and silver work in London tightened in the 15th and 16th centuries. So the goldsmiths were amongst the most reluctant of the major livery companies. Um, at becoming involved in Ulster, but nevertheless acquiesced to the financial demands imposed by the Irish Society upon them. Lot number one was assigned to them in association with, the, with three sub-companies, the cord wainers, painter stainers and armourers, in December 1613. Okay. So, just to give a sense of where it is, it's right here on the, uh, the far left, just south of Derry. Comprising some 11,000 modern-day statuette acres, it lay in the barony of Tyrkiran on the south side of the River Foyle, opposite the town of Derry, which gave greater security to the proportion and commercial benefits. The one obvious impediment facing the goldsmiths was the lack of woodland from which to extract building material, but a deal was quickly worked out between the companies, whereby those with ample forests on their estates would allow those without to fell trees for construction. So we were able to gain a unique insight into the goldsmiths and their endeavours in Londonderry during the first decade of the plantation, owing to the survival of a highly detailed source. This is a volume which was compiled by a member of the company, Henry Carter, probably around 1619 or 1620. Little is known of Carter, other than that he served as the clerk of the company in 1616. The volume he compiled is not easily classifiable, Stretching to nearly 900 pages, it contains a wide array of documentation. The first 100, pa 100 or so pages consist of documents which concern the initial negotiations between the city and the Crown in 1609 and 1610, including, for instance, the Articles of Agreement. Um, they were signed on the 28th of January 1610. 
significant documents given that the Londoners would later argue unsuccessfully that they were bound solely by the provisions of these articles and not the general orders and conditions and project of plantation enforced throughout the rest of the Ulster plantation. There are then 200 pages taken up with the text of the Charter of Incorporation of London Derry. Following this, the volume becomes more concerned with the goldsmiths and is diffused with correspondence between the goldsmiths' agents and other prominent individuals on the ground in London Derry and the company in London from 1613 through to 1619. However, even these sections are not unambiguously what might be termed a letter book, as the letters are interspersed with reports and other documents some of which do not exclusively concern the goldsmiths, but refer to the Londoners' involvement in Ulster as a whole. We are wholly fortunate that Carter included uh, the latter documents when he compiled this volume, because amongst these more general papers are documents which concern three highly significant surveys of London Derry. The first is the mission comprised of George Smiths and Matthias Springham, sent by the Irish Society to investigate the progress of the London Derry Plantation in 1613. The second is the only surviving fragment of a survey which Josiah Bodley undertook of the whole of the Ulster Plantation in 1614. And the third are the records of a further mission sent by the Londoners to Ulster in 1616 and comprised of Peter Proby and once again Matthias Springham. These documents are immensely important for the study of the London Derry Plantation during the reign of James I, and as such, Carter's volume is one of the most critical sources to survive for examination of London's involvement in Ulster at this time. Given the significance of the volume, it is perhaps somewhat strange that Carter's volume has been somewhat of a neglected source. T.W. Moody relied heavily on it for the London Derry Plantation. Um, however, since then, it has rarely featured in works on the early history of the Ulster Plantation. This is perhaps not as strange an oversight as it appears, given the location of the volume. It is still housed in the archives of the Goldsmiths at Goldsmiths Hall in London. This is unusual, as most of the livery company's records pertaining to Londonderry have found their way to other repositories. Many were initially loaned to the Guildhall Library in the aftermath of the Second World War, as many of the livery company's halls had been bombed during the Blitz in 1940 and 1941 and had records destroyed. These loans in most instances became permanent and those same records are generally still found at the Guildhall Library. However, the goldsmiths subsequently requested that their records be returned to Goldsmiths Hall. Though not all of them found their way back, most did and these included Carter's volume. As such, it is housed in a rather obscure archive and there isn't a detailed catalogue for the records at Goldsmiths Hall. So, more, so correspondence with the archivist there is needed to determine its actual location. When it is consulted, Carter's volume provides a, de a very detailed window, window into the development of the estate up to 1619. So when assessing the development of the estate, it is key to bear in mind the theory which underpins the Ulster plantation, as in judging the relative success of any of the companies, what was central is that they adhered to their obligations so that what was conceived as an act of social, demographic and material engineering could be successful. In this respect, the key tenants guiding the companies were those found in documents such as the order and Orders and Conditions, published in London and Edinburgh in 1609, the unpublished Project for Plantation of 1610, and for the Londoners, the Articles of Agreement signed with the Crown in January 1610.
The latter ostensibly provided the basis for the Crown's agreement with the city and laid out in 27 articles what the city was required to accomplish in return for the grant of Londonderry. These, however, overwhelmingly focused on the development of the towns of Derry and Coleraine and the fort of Coolmore, and other issues such as the liberty lands granted to the two towns and the fisheries of the Ban and Loch Foyle. There is no real consideration given here to the county lands at this time. Accordingly, it later became the Crown's position <clears throat> that, the that the 12 companies were obliged to meet the same goals that the English and Scottish undertakers in the other five counties were required to, as outlined in the orders and conditions and the project for plantation. Um, in brief, these stated that the holders of estates would build a castle and bawn or surrounding fortification on their estate and would settle a certain number of British settlers on their lands to whom they would grant freeholds and other, other estates and who they would enjoin to live in nucleated villages of British style housing. They were also expressly commanded to remove the Irish from their lands who were to be relocated throughout Ulster to the precincts allocated to servitors and deserving Irish grantees. Additionally, they were to foster religious and cultural norms by, for instance, taking the oath of supremacy, repairing parish churches, speaking English generally, and engaging in the sort of agricultural and commercial work which was deemed the norm of England and lowland Scotland, or what James I would have termed inland Scotland. Strict timeframes were laid down for the accomplishing of these goals usually aimed at having the building and tenanting requirements achieved within a few years. However, by the time delivery companies received their lands in Londonderry in December 1613, the Scottish and English undertakers throughout the other five counties had had three to four years to demonstrate just how generally implausible these goals were. While a small number of the 160 or so undertakers had made great strides in developing their proportions, the majority made slow faltering starts and the deadlines for achieving these goals were quickly extended to take account of this. So how well did the goldsmiths <coughs> succeed in doing all this between the granting of their estates in December 1613 through to the termination of James's reign in 1625? Like the other companies, following the granting of the estates to them in December 1613, the goldsmiths immediately took action to begin developing their lands. At meetings of the court of the company in London early in 1614, a resolution was quickly taken to appoint Andrew Bowdler and Robert Glynn as their agents in Ulster. Um, Bowdler had been a sheriff of a county in Ireland. If anybody knows what county it was, please do tell me. Um, even at this very early date, the company was, were also entertaining offers to farm out their entire estate to an individual or group of individuals a course which eventually 11 of the 12 companies would offer. Offers were being entertained in early 1614 from Robert Calvert, a brother of the future Baron of Baltimore and founder of the Maryland colony. George Calvert, uh, or sorry, George Calvert, the, yeah, the, the founder of the Maryland colony. Uh, a minor servitor grantee in Armagh, Marmaduke Whitechurch, and the clerk of Derry, Robert Goodwin one of the most significant figures in the early history of the Ulster plantation, the one whose significance has been relatively understated. While such offers were being entertained, Bowdler and Glenn had quickly made progress in Londonderry, organising building material, 
taking a survey of the entire estate and attempting to settle British tenants thereon. They were at something of an advantage as there were already five houses inhabited by British settlers on their estate. So, I mean, this kind of emphasizes the fact that, I mean, when the plantation starts, they're not just arriving into a vacuum. There is a certain amount of settlement across all of the six counties. Yet Bowdler and Glen were endeavouring to improve these dwellings and construct others, while they had also laid out ground for the construction of a mill <clears throat> and a tenant was being sought who might endeavour to build the same on favourable terms. This was a relatively positive start, one which was mirrored in the behaviour of the other livery companies in developing their own estates in 1614. It is then somewhat unusual that the companies came in for considerable criticism later in the year when Josias Bodley conducted a survey of the entire Ulster plantation. Bodley had undertaken a similar survey in 1613, the results of which are known to us, however only his report on Londonderry has survived for the 1614 survey. This is, as I mentioned, in Carter's letter book at Goldsmiths Hall. So here's just the, uh, the opening sections of it. The great majority of Bodley's report was concerned with the development of the towns of Derry and Coleraine and the forts at Coolmore. However, he did give brief consideration to the county lands and the estates of the 12 companies. Here he noted of the 12 companies' estates that, to quote, there is nothing in that purpose effected save that divers their agents, but meanly qualified to undergo that charge, were employed over by them this last summer with instructions to build some certain number of tenements where they could best choose on their lands, thereby to improve the same to their best advantage, and of that kind, the Salters only can show some beginnings. Bodley's criticism here presaged two decades of what on balance must be considered unfair criticism of the Londoners and their efforts in Ulster. The companies had only been granted their estates in December 1613, months before, and since then had made some significant initial efforts to begin developing their lands. Any sluggishness in doing so was in any event matched and often considerably superseded by the undertakers in the other five counties, who would never face the same level of criticism in the years to come as the Londoners would. There's a curious bias here and one which suffuses most of the official statements on the London Derry plantation throughout the early Stuart period. So, just as Bodley was surveying the plantation, efforts to farm the estate were advancing for the goldsmiths in London. At some stage late in 1614, an offer was made by John Freeman of Great Bearfield in Essex to take the proportion. An agreement was cons consequently signed on 28 January 1615, by this, Freeman covenanted to farm the whole proportion for £106 rent annually. He was also bound to build a castle and bone on the estate and erect 12 stone houses. This does not mean the goldsmiths simply farmed their responsibility for, for the proportion out and thereafter paid little attention to it other than receiving rents. The goldsmiths, like all the other companies that farmed their estates, continued to discuss their Irish property regularly at the court meetings of their company in London. Thus, in the voluminous court minutes for the companies at the Guildhall Library are to be found regular entries, <coughs> usually every few weeks, where Irish business was discussed. So just to take one example, here's an, an excerpt from the, uh, the Vintners Company's uh, court minutes. 
The vendors had received their lands toward the southeast of the company, or the, the county in the barony of Lochie and Sholen. Um, they are recorded in their court, court minutes for the company as having discussed their lands uh, in Ulster in nearly 60 separate meetings between uh, the granting of their lands in December 1613 and the end of James's reign in 1625. Some of these discussions were evidently extended and point clearly to active involvement and engagement with their Irish estate long after this particular company farmed a proportion to Baptist Jones. Equally, Carter's volume of records pertaining to the goldsmith's lands reproduces extensive correspondence had between the company in London and major figures on the ground in London Derry between 1614 and 1619. Notably, the sometime mayor of Coleraine and the Irish Society's chief agent in London Derry, Tristram Beresford, the clerk of Derry and eventual steward of most of the company's estates, Robert Goodwin, and the city surveyor, Thomas Raven. Records such as these, which remain relatively uninvestigated, show active involvement in the development of their London Derry lands by companies such as the Goldsmiths, and suggested rather than farmers on, of the estates, the individuals like Freeman who took hold of them should be viewed more as chief tenants. There certainly was robust and continuous involvement by the companies from London. For instance, in late 1615, several months after he had taken effective control of the proportion, the, walls, the wardens, masters and associates of the Goldsmiths Company in London wrote to Freeman to rebuke him for not creating freeholds quickly enough on the estate. They were still receiving information from Ulster, deliberating on it, and sending directives to the farmer Freeman, who in this instance clearly was not free to do whatever he wished so long as the rents were paid. Freeman's problems were not limited to rebukes about his failure to create a satisfactory amount of freeholds. The company was to discover, to its dismay, in the years ahead, that Freeman was not financially solvent enough to invest the money he needed to in order to build the castle in Bonn and the required amount of housing. Thus, by September 1616, he, he had succeeded in completing just two of the 12 houses he was bound to build, while a third was uh, built but uh, didn't have a roof, and a fort was under construction. Accordingly, in 1616, Freeman travelled to London, and appeared at a court meeting of the company in which he successfully negotiated that he would build just six houses instead of 12. These had been completed by June 1617. Freeman had also succeeded in roofing and slating the parish church of Clondermott by 1617, thus ensuring that he was seeing to the religious needs of the estate and the settlers on it. However, on the Bowling Castle, which he was required to create as the centrepiece of the expanding village, typically referred to as uh, Goldsmiths Hall, somewhat confusingly. Uh, Freeman was making slow progress. All of this was occurring at a time when the Londoners as a whole were coming under increasing scrutiny by the Crown. Following Bodley's survey of the entire Ulster plantation of 1614, James I had written to the Lord Deputy, Arthur Chichester, in the spring of 1615, expressing his great dissatisfaction with the progress of the Londoners in Ulster. Accordingly, Chichester was to see that they were rebuked and encouraged to, to proceed to fulfil their obligations in London Derry. Moreover, Bodley was to undertake a third survey in Ulster the following year, focusing exclusively on the London Derry plantation. 
no portion of the report of the survey Bodley subsequently undertook in Londonderry in 1616 has survived. Yet despite this unfortunate lack of an extant copy, there is substantial enough evidence amongst the company's records to indicate that Bodley did in fact undertake it. For instance, the individual livery companies were requested in the autumn of 1616 to provide certificates on their progress in developing their lands, and it is relatively clear that these were being sought as part of Bodley's survey. Given the unfortunate loss of the survey itself, uh, we, can, we can conjecture somewhat at its conclusions. Bodley would no doubt have reported on much greater progress on the lands of the companies, such as the goldsmiths, than had been in 1614. But nevertheless, these same companies had still not met their obligations fully. Yet James must have been reasonably satisfied with this latest report, or at least less displeased than he was following the 1614 report, as there is no correspondence with the government in Dublin following it indicating any excessive displeasure, and no sub subsequent in investigation seems to have been called in its aftermath. This was justified as the companies were making considerable progress in the mid to late 1610s. For instance, Freeman and the goldsmiths appear to have been making steady progress towards meeting their requirements to settle British, to settle British settlers on the estate at this time. In 1618, a muster of the provinces of Ulster and Leinster was taken by George Allen. For the six counties comprising the Ulster plantation, Allen recorded his results according to the individual estates. For the goldsmith's proportion, he recorded that 49 British adult males appeared there. However, their ability to defend themselves, another envisaged aim of the plantation throughout Ulster, would have been limited by a relative lack of arms. And there were just four muskets, two calivers, three pikes and 13 swords to be found there, meaning that just under half of the mustered men could have armed themselves in the event of violent unrest in Londonderry. Um, Relatively speaking, that amount of weapons was actually quite good. You do get other record or uh, entries for other states where there might have been 200 people mustered and they might have had like three guns and a sword or something. So I don't know how they would have shared them. Um, in late 1618, yet another survey of the Ulster plantation was ordered by the Crown seeking to understand how the undertakers and other interest holders throughout the plantation were progressing towards fulfilling the theory on which the plantation had been established. The charge of this fell to Nicholas Penner, who toured Ulster in the late winter and early spring of 1618 and 1619. Of the goldsmith's estate, he reported that Freeman, with the aid of a £300 loan from the goldsmith's company in London, built a bone of lime and stone at Goldsmith's Hall, measuring 100 feet square, 16 feet high and with four flankers. Uh, within the bone, a stone castle was also under construction and had been raised to the second story. On the estate, he identified six stone houses and six timber houses. The stone houses would seem to be the six freemen had erected in the burgeoning village of Goldsmiths Hall, um, with the rest possibly scattered throughout the estate and largely made up of the dwellings which had pre-existed the involvement of Goldsmiths there. Pinner found that Freeman had estated six British freeholders, 24 British leaseholders, um, though there is an obvious mismatch here between the number of tenanted settlers and the number of houses. Presumably, some were living in temporary dwellings that Pinner did not record, or else were absentee landholders. Um, 
the latter is quite possible. You do get for a lot of the London Derry records, the people that are actually living in Derry or Coleraine are actually leasing lands on the, the, the county estate, so they would have been absent. These, yeah, these 30 families and their undertenants were able to make 90 armed men. All in all, this indicates that despite his financial difficulties and other impediments, Freeman and the Goldsmiths Company were making considerable progress in the mid, mid to late 1610s towards meeting the plantation requirements. Henry Carter's volume of records pertaining to the Goldsmiths lands in Londonderry terminates in January 1619. It is unclear why, as there was no major event or occurrence in the, on the estate at this time, which would have led Carter to logically end his collection at this point. Additional documentation is available for the subsequent development of the estate, but much of this is oddly contradictory. For instance, Thomas Raven, the surveyor employed by the Irish Society and the individual livery companies throughout Londonderry, mapped the estate around 1619 and again in 1622. But curiously, as James Stephen Curl has noted, some copies of these maps diverge in terms of the number of buildings, while the dimensions of certain buildings also do not align across different copies of these maps, even ones dating to the same years. Nevertheless, they are of value despite these inconsistencies, as none of the structures on the Goldsmiths estate from this time survive today, and therefore the depictions of the buildings on Raven's maps are the best visual evidence for understanding how the houses here were built. These indicate that the buildings were erected using local supplies, as slate was in abundance on the goldsmith's proportion and utilised extensively in the buildings. So arguably the best window into the state of the goldsmith's lands towards the end of the reign of James I is provided in a survey of the Ulster plantation made in 1622 as part of the wide-ranging commission for Irish affairs. Richard Hadzer and Thomas Phillips were charged with surveying the plantation lands in Donegal and Londonderry. They described the village of Goldsmiths Hall as lying some two miles from Derry. Freeman appears to have changed course since Pinner's visit three years previously and elected to build his castle or manor house outside of the bond for some strange unknown reason. Yet it was reported that this was finished, thus meeting one of the key obligations of both Freeman and the company. The village had expanded to include the six stone houses Freeman had erected years before and a further seven houses, albeit of timber construction. They reaffirmed Pinner's reports of other houses scattered throughout the estate, though Hadzer and Phillips noted that the inhabitants of these should form a settlement on the proportion further inland for their own security. In terms of the settlement of the proportion, the goldsmiths had made some considerable progress by the end of James's reign. Pursuant from the 1622 investigations, inquisitions were taken throughout Londonderry between the 28th of February and 6th of March 1624. Um, so these were part of the same inquisitions that the, the Jared has noted earlier, the, the Fermanagh ones. Um, to establish what proportion of the county lands were held by British settlers and what proportion were still inhabited by the Irish. These found that roughly 40% of those living on the Goldsmiths estate were Irish. In terms of meeting the obligation to remove the Irish from their lands, this figure quite accords quite favourably with other companies such as the Salters, whose estate had a population of roughly 80% Irish and 20% British settlers. 
Others, such as Robert McClelland, who held both the haberdashers and cloth workers' proportions, where the percentage of the population was made up uh, by the Irish was about 24% and 16% respectively, had per performed significantly better than the goldsmiths in this respect. The key here, as with so much else of the plantation, was geography. McClellan's lands in the northeast of the county and in proximity to Coleraine were a natural entry point for settlers from Scotland. Equally, the goldsmiths with their lands south of Derry stood a far greater chance of attracting British settlers than the Salters, whose lands were in the remote southern reaches of the county in the heavily wooded and less fertile barony of Lockie and Shulman. However, despite the fact that some of the livery companies were performing quite well in terms of this plantation goal, and in many cases much better than a great number of the English and Scottish undertakers in the other five planted counties in the closing years of James's reign, they continued to face a disproportionately large amount of criticism from observers both in Ireland and in England. For instance, by the end of the reign, uh, the extended family of Mer Mervyn Touche, Lord Audley, which had been granted the entire precinct of Omagh in Tyrone, or John Murray, the first Earl of Annandale, who held the entire precinct of Boilock and Banna in Donegal, were still reported to have categorically failed to meet almost all of their obligations in Ulster. Yet they would never face the kind of censure which the Londoners did throughout the latter part of the reign of James I and that of, Char of Charles I. In the years ahead, the goldsmiths' estate in Londonderry entered a period of stagnation. Much of this was owing to the limbo in which the city companies and those who had farmed their estates in Londonderry found themselves from the very inception of the reign of Charles I. In 1625, the Londoners' inveterate opponent, Thomas Phillips of Limavady, presented documentation to the government in London, which led the Crown to sequester the city's rents from their properties in Londonderry. Thus began a decade of prosecution of the city by Charles's government, which would eventually culminate in the infamous trial in Star Chamber in 1635, the imposition of huge fines on the city for allegedly neglecting their Irish estates and failing to meet their obligations, and finally, the confiscation of their lands by Charles I. As these events proceeded, the goldsmith's estate, slow though the development had been under James I, stagnated. No better evidence of this is there than the musters of the province, which were taken by Richard Graham almost certainly in 1630. Rather than improving, British settlement on the estate was declining. Just 42 British adult males were mustered, and the cache of weapons available to them remained the same as in the earlier muster of 1618 and at the time of the 1622 commission. Yet despite the ruptures caused by the events of the 1640s and major upheavals in Ulster, the settlement which the goldsmiths and freemen established in their proportion would endure in the long run. So today what was Goldsmiths Hall is the town of Newtown Buildings. As such, the goldsmiths' experience of plantation in Ulster in the early 17th century is broadly representative of the plantation as a whole. As an act of demographic, so social and cultural engineering, it could be deemed to have been a failure by the standards of the planners in London, since the goldsmiths failed to achieve in practice the goals set by the theory of plantation. However, in attempting to put that theory into practice in the long run, the landscape of Ulster would be enduring and transformed. Cheers.
Um, so thank you both very much for, for sharing your work with us. Um, it's been very interesting um, and, and gives some indication of the, the value of um, the Hunter grant process and, and how, they are, how it is, as, as Miguel was saying, is pushing the, the knowledge um, of what we have about the plantation just that little bit further on. Um, so again, I'd like to just say thank you both to Julie and to Orla, who's now turned into a photographer, um, whereas she, she's done a lot of the, um, the administrative work for, for organizing this event. So thank you very much to Orla. And thank you also to, to Mary and to James and to John Morrow, who, who can't be here. Um, for all the work that you've been doing on the, um, the grant uh, committee. Um, so, thank you all for coming. Um, and hopefully... Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Royal Irish Academy. To listen to many more podcasts, go to ria.ie.